Well, I'm glad we have a good turnout today. I was wondering if anybody would show up and shift. And this was always my, uh, I hated this Sunday when I was an active pastor, because it was, especially when it landed on Easter. Every once in a while it lands on Easter. And my Easter ritual is I get up at 3 a.m., and I go to the church, and my church in Dallas had a columbarium, and I'd go sit out there, and I'd read everybody's name on the, the things. I put most of them in there, and I'd think about their lives, and I'd sit down and go, okay, it's Easter Sunday, Lord. E- if the Easter gospel's not true, then there's not a hope in the world for these people. So I've got to make a decision before I go in there and preach four services. I've got to decide, is this true or not? And every year I would decide it's true, and then I'd go in there and preach. But but when daylight savings time landed on a Sunday, basically I was getting up at 2 a.m., and uh, so, man, uh, I don't know why they don't get rid of daylight savings time. It is in the Bible, you know, when the... Sun stands still. That was the first daylight savings time. But I used, when I was in college, I worked on a farm out in Leon Valley, dairy, 800 Holsteins. And uh, it don't matter. You can change the clocks, but they come in to be milked twice a day at the same time. And uh, anyway. And Tom was saying something about spring break. And I saw in the news the other day some shots of, I don't know, Fort Lauderdale there or something. I said, man. I missed that. I never had a spring break. I played baseball in college, and uh, spring break, we played. The only students at Trinity University on the campus were the tennis team and the baseball team, so we were always very close. And then after everybody would graduate, we were there in the tennis team because we were always in the uh, regional playoffs. And uh, so, so I never got a spring break. While you all were out carousing, um, we were hosting all these teams from the north would come down. Notre Dame, Michigan, uh, Illinois, University of Illinois. I remember Kansas. We played Kansas. And they had two brothers on the team, the Riggins brothers. These two big guys, John Riggins, who wound up playing the NFL for the Washington Redskins. and uh, They were better football players than baseball players. <laughs> but still, it was it was interesting time. Um, and then Barbara, uh, Ann's granddaughter, um, Paul Cunningham's a senior pastor at, at La Jolla Press, and he's a good friend of mine. He was actually the pastor of Westminster Press in Lubbock back in the 2000s when we had a Texas covenant group of the senior pastors and most of the large churches. Lewis got that started when me and Singleton came back to Texas at the same time. So Lewis said, let's Let's get together and let's ask Dave McKechnie at First uh, Grace Press Houston and uh, the new guy at First Press Houston. And uh, so we had 12 in our group. And that's mainly the reason we're in ECO, because Peter Barnes, who's pastor at Westlake Hills, he was the guy who came up with the whole idea of we got to do something because they would no longer allow churches from the PCUSA to transfer out into the EPC. They said the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, is too narrow. They only have one confession of faith, the Westminster Confession. 
Well, we were kind of panicking, and we, back in 2008, eight of us met in my office in Dallas to say, what are we going to do in case we need to get out? And Peter Barnes came up with this whole idea of uh, what evolved into to eco, and we, we decided we'd pattern this new group exactly to look like the PCUSA, so we adopted their book of confessions so they couldn't say we're too narrow. But, you know, when you've got 11 confessions, you really don't have any. That's one of the reasons, uh, you know, we voted whether or not to reunite with the Northern Church when I was an associate pastor here. We had four pastors at the time, and three of us voted against it, Lewis and uh, Singleton and myself, and I won't name the fourth who voted for it. And Lewis asked me one time, why are you going to vote against this? And he, he had his reasons. And I said, well, one of the reasons is because of the book of confessions. I wasn't against any of the confessions. They're all solid, biblically orthodox. But I said, I have a hunch when there's like 11, you're really going to have none. And uh, that's really what happened. The other reason is uh, uh, physics. Uh, the Southern Church was not doing real well either. I figure we need to fix this denomination before we merge. Because when you lash two sinking ships together, <laughs> they both go down quicker. Unfortunately, I was right. And uh, so anyway, I'm glad we are in a new configuration. Um, it's really exciting what's going on in ECO, uh, church planting, and uh, two seminaries that are going to be starting up. The denomination starting one, we're starting the other. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all pans out. But, you know, our previous denomination, they've gotten rid of their book, a Board of World Missions. They said that was colonialistic. So they're not sending missionaries anywhere anymore. So the Great Commission now has been declared colonialistic. So if any of your friends say, I think we made a mistake to leave, tell them that. And that denomination's really in, in trouble. That doesn't mean... We won't be if we don't be vigilant and uh, stay true to the, to the faith. Um, I'm filling in for Chris today, and he'll be back next week. And we're on this Lenten journey with his booklet of Old Testament prophecies and how they point to uh, the coming Messiah. And today he wants us to take a look at the life of David and how David is sort of a precursor to the Messiah. And uh, I put a text up there, Mark 12, 35 through 37. Let me read that because it this, these are Christ's words and really describing his relationship to David. And uh, it goes like this. It says, and, Jesus, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ, and the Greek Christos means Messiah, anointed one. How can the scribes say that the coming Messiah is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, and he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, David himself calls the Messiah Lord so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You know, when people say Jesus never claimed to be God, uh, he does a number of times. 
This is one of them. Uh, the scribes were teaching that this coming Messiah was going to be a son of David, a human being, probably a great king like David who'd come in on the proverbial white stallion and, and throw off Roman oppression and restore Israel to independence and on the top of the political heap. And uh, they were not, re they really didn't have a concept that the, uh, the scribes of God coming into time and space and actually being the Messiah. And so Jesus here says, you know, if the Messiah is just like of the lineage of David and another human being in the line of David, how come God calls him Lord? How come David calls him Lord? Um, which is a term reserved only for deity. So here's Jesus claiming to be uh, deity. Before we get into the, the whole thing about David, though, I want to jump back to last week where we looked at this whole idea of the heinousness of our sin. And we don't like to talk about that. You know, uh, probably about, oh man, 50 years ago, uh, Carl Menninger, the Menninger Clinic, he's a psychiatrist. He's also a Presbyterian layman and not a bad theologian. And he wrote a book about 50 years ago called Whatever Became of Sin. And here's Menninger's basic premise of the book. He says, most people today have lost the whole concept of sin and its seriousness. And the result of that is, in his practice, he sees, I see a lot of people running around suffering under great burdens of guilt and angst because they've never confessed their sin. He said, 90% of mental illness in the United States is caused by a faulty understanding of sin and how to get out from underneath the guilt of it. And uh, it got a lot of acclaim at the time, but it doesn't seem to have taken hold in much of our society today. And I think there's truth to what Menninger is saying. Um, if you don't keep short accounts with God, that sin will just, that guilt, it's real. But you're not meant post-Christ to carry that guilt around with you. And we keep thinking either that our sin is too bad, it's unforgivable, or we don't take our sin seriously enough. Uh, someone came out, uh, up to me after the class last week and said, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm a sinner, but I've, I've never murdered anybody. And I said, yes, you have. Yes, you have. I'm a murderer. Everyone in this room's a murderer. After our daughter Anna drowned, and she was that was on my watch, and it took me nine months to come to the surface after that. And I went to a conference, and this one of the speakers was a woman named Becky Pippert. I don't know if you may remember we had her come here to First Pres a number of times, and um, this was not long after Anna died, and. Uh, I sought her out, and we were talking, and I said, you know, Becky, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm a murderer, and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. She said, Ron, you were already a murderer. I said, what? She said, you killed Christ. 
That's the reality, folks. If, if you ever think, well, you know, I, I'm kind of just a white-collar sinner, never really done anything bad, I've never robbed anybody or, you know, that kind of stuff, um, you're still a Christ killer. That is the most serious sin. Uh, if you ever saw the movie, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, he's the director. He makes one cameo appearance in the film. Does anybody know what that is? You don't see his face. All you see is his arm with a hammer in it. And it's after they've laid Jesus out on the cross and they're about to drive the spikes. You, it just focuses in on this hand driving the spikes in there. That's Mel Gibson's arm. And that was his way of injecting him into the film with a theological point that I'm the Christ killer. I'm the one who put him on. And you know that great hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? That's not just a, a pretty hymn. That's not just a rhetorical question. It's a serious question. Were you there? You're saying, no, 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 that was 2,000 years. Yeah, you were there. You were there. I was there. We, collectively, the human race, put Christ. It's our sin that sent him to the cross. It's our sin that nailed him there. And uh, so any time you think, well, my sin's really not too bad, just remind yourselves, I am the Christ killer. And that shows you just how great the grace of God is, that you and I are totally not guilty for that. Christ paid our penalty, and so when we stand before God one day, he's not going to say, you killed my son. He's going to say, you're free uh, in my son. That's how great the grace of God is to forgive. So we all need to remember that. That's when you come to a real healthy understanding of life. And uh, so, well, let's talk about David a little bit. You know, um, you can make a lot of comparisons between Jesus and David. Now, I'm going to throw out some questions, and I hope you'll uh, answer them. Uh, what are some similarities between David and Jesus. Can you think of any? What, what are some things they shared in common? Humble origins. Mm -hmm. Humble origins, yep. He's described as a man after God's own heart. David was described as a man after God's own heart, and certainly Jesus was as well. Yep. They were both the servants of the law and took their obligations to God very seriously. Yeah, they took the law seriously and tried to follow uh, the Mosaic law. Anything else? Paul? They knew how stupid sheep were. They knew how, how stupid sheep were. Yeah, David was a shepherd, <laughs> shepherd boy. Jesus is the good shepherd. Um, you know, a lot of times we romanticize shepherds in Scripture, and we think how cute and little cuddly lambs. Um, down below, uh, used car salesmen in ancient Israel were shepherds. That was about the bottom rung. So when we read about David being a, a shepherd boy, uh, he was at the bottom. He was at the bottom. But you, but you learn, have you ever petted a sheep and then smelled your hand? Uh, 
that lanolin stinks. And sheep are not real smart. There's, it's not a mistake that Scripture refers to us as sheep. And God is not thinking, you're a bunch of cuddly, fuzzy people. No, you're stupid. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they will nibble their way getting to lostness. That's us. It's said if a sheep falls into a ditch, he'll just sit there. He's too dumb to try to get out. And they, you know, the 23rd Psalm, he leadeth me uh, by still waters. That's because sheep are too scared of a running brook to drink out of it. So they have to have a, uh, so it's not a compliment to call somebody a sheep. Uh, So yeah, they knew how stupid sheep were. What else, what are the parallels? There's a bunch of them. Think hard. Where were they born? They both were born in Bethlehem. You know, David's, David was kind of a Renaissance man. When you think about it, he, was a, he, he knew how to tend sheep. What else did David do well? Played the harp, so he was a musician. What else? He had the qualities that people listened to. He what? I don't, I don't want to say leadership, but it's that in Spanish. He had the quality of what he said that people listened to him. Yeah, I think he did have great leadership skills. Yeah. We see this even when he's a shepherd boy and he runs an errand to Saul's army to give his brothers some food. And the Goliath is coming out saying, you know, who's going to come out and take me on? And David looks around and says, why are you guys allowing this guy to blaspheme the living God? And David goes out there and takes him on. But either he was really stupid or he had great leadership skills. Of course, he, he knew the Lord was on his side. And Goliath makes fun of him. And he said, I come to you in the name of the living God. You're in trouble, buddy. And uh, he was also a, a poet. He was a composer. The Psalms, most of the Psalms are written by David. That's the Hebrew hymn book. He was a great warrior. What else might be a parallel between Christ and David? Well, they're both kings. In fact, David is considered the greatest of all the Hebrew kings. Although, here's here's God's grace again. Can you name a king in the Old Testament that might have a better track record overall in terms of walking with God than David did? There's probably a couple that you could pull out. But why is David considered the greatest king? David was also a murderer and an adulterer. You would think that would totally disqualify him from being in the lineage of the Messiah. And yet, Old Testament talks about the Messiah is going to come out of the lineage of David. Have you ever looked at Jesus' lineage? If you take 
Matthew, the opening chapter to Matthew's gospel, he goes through all the generations. There's, some, there's a prostitute in there, all kinds of shady people. That's good news for you and me. Again, how gracious God is. Um, you can't blow it with God as long as you turn to him and receive the salvation, the forgiveness that he offers. No sin is too great. And I think this is a way of God's saying to us, look, if I can make David the forerunner of the Messiah, there's hope for you all, because most of us are not murderers and adulterers. Um, we have our own peccadilloes, but nothing is too great for the blood of Christ to cover. So let's um, take a look at um, 2 Samuel, if you have your Bibles with you, 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 through 17. This is a key text um, to help us understand what uh, God is doing in the life of David and how that relates to, to Christ. Here's how this reads. It says, But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling, the tabernacle. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here you have the Lord telling David, um, your reign is going to be eternal. It's going to be forever. He doesn't mean literally David, the king, but 
his lineage, it's going to culminate in an eternal king. And that's uh, one of the great Old Testament uh, prophecies. Um, so we have this direct connection between David, who is the greatest Hebrew king, and then the one who is to come, who is king of kings and lord of lords. Let me stop at this point and see if you have any insights or any questions that come to your mind about David and how he foreshadows the coming of Christ. Anybody got any insights or questions? Come on, I know you do. If you were God, would you have selected David to be the lineage out of which the Messiah would come? No, I would have picked Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Going down the wrong path or the right path, but he was in motion. And you know, David was, yeah, he, he was, and yet he never um, tried to seize power. He, God opened doors for him, and he was not afraid to walk through them. I mean, the thing with Goliath is just, you know, it's crazy, except David knew that God called him. Uh, to deliver the whole army. Yeah. And you know, David was a guy who really took God's law seriously, and yet in the midst of that, he has these great flaws. I mean, look at the honor of David when, when Saul is chasing him through the hill country of Judea and uh, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself and David and his men are hiding in the back of the cave and Saul has no clue and he does his thing and David cuts off a little piece of his robe after Saul leaves. And of course his friends are saying, kill him. The Lord has provided you the opportunity to kill him. What is David's response? You shall not lift your hand against the Lord's anointed. So even though Saul was his enemy, he, the law of God prevented him from doing that. And yet, his flaws um, with the Bathsheba incident, when David should have been out with his army in the field, he stayed behind for whatever reason and uh, then winds up trying to cover up by murdering Uriah. And David was, you know, had an intimate relationship with God. And he wasn't afraid to shake his fist in God's face. One of my favorite stories, it may seem odd, but in 2 Samuel 6, 
They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant. They've recaptured it from the Philistines. They're bringing it back into Jerusalem. David's leading the procession, dancing out in front. And, you know, God said, nobody touches the Ark, not even the priests. They can get on, they can hold it with poles, but nobody touches the actual Ark. And they're coming in with a cart, and the cart tips, and your, your uh, Uzzah uh, puts his hand on the Ark to steady it, to keep it from busting on the ground. And God strikes him dead. And if David, it says, David rails out in anger against God, which gives you and me permission to do likewise. When we don't like what God is doing in the world, we don't have to pretend we don't like it. God knows our every thought. Many of the Psalms, the psalmist rails out at God. God can take it. And he wants us to be honest and I don't like the God that we meet in 2 Samuel 6. I would have, you know, given him hemorrhoids or something, but not kill him. But I like to say this is the God of Scripture. It's, the God of Scripture is angular. He's not smooth. And uh, here, this 2 Samuel text is really underscores the angularity of God. And yet, that text is true. There's a lot of Folks would just say, well, that's just some primitive, you know, pre-Christian understanding. No, it's true. And it's just as true as John 3.16. And you got to hold both of them together to get an accurate picture of God. God is not somebody to be trifled with, and yet he loves you and me enough to go to the cross to accomplish our salvation, to send a Messiah. God, God should have just wiped his hands of the human race. But no, he comes in, becomes one of us, shares all of our junk um, to accomplish our, our salvation. So there's good news. David, even though he walks with the Lord most of the time, and he's still flawed. And that's you and me. None of us are disqualified. That I, I'm often amazed at the story of Jacob and Esau. You know, Jacob was a was a rat, and he remains a rat throughout his life. Esau was a good guy. Um, you know, he, he comes in. He was not very smart. He was a sheep. Comes in and sells his birthright to to Jacob for a bowl of soup. Um, but you remember, he, he, then he gets angry when he loses the blessing. And he says, I'm going to kill you. But Esau gets over that. Jacob lives in fear the rest of his life that Esau is out to get him. And then God says, Jacob, I want you to go back where Esau lives. You remember what Jacob does? He divides his family into two groups. If he gets one of these, at least these guys will escape. And then one of the most beautiful scenes in Scripture it says Jacob sees, or Esau sees Jacob coming, and Jacob recognizes Esau. He goes, here it is. And what does Esau do? You know, Jacob puts all these gifts in front of him and tries to bribe him to not kill him. Esau's not paying any attention. He throws his arms around his brother and welcomes him back. I, th I can't prove it. I have a hunch that real story is kind of the bedrock for the parable, parable of the prodigal son. There's, there's that parallel about the father sees 
the son coming back, you know, and the son has this laundry list of things that he'll do to try to rectify himself. And Father, I don't want to listen to that. Get the ring, get the calf, and throws his arms around his son. I can't help but think that's in Jesus, the Jacob story is in Jesus' mind. And Esau was a hero. And yet God says the promise is not going to come through the line of Esau. It's going to come through the line of Jacob, the rat. That's the grace, the sheer grace of God. What other questions about David come to your mind in relation to Christ? Yeah, he did. And David was laying up the supplies so his son could build the, the house. Yeah. We can only speculate. We don't know what David really thought. But I kind of think he didn't. I, I, the reason I say that is because by the time Christ arrives, certainly the majority, if not all, of the Jews were not expecting a Messiah like Jesus. They, they were expecting... The, the Davidic warrior king uh, who would come in and, and turn everything upside down, right side up, and restore Israel and get rid of the Roman occupation. They just didn't grasp Isaiah 53, which is, you know, I, I've Jewish friends of mine that become Christians, it's often Isaiah 53 that draws them into the Messiah's arms. That's the suffering servant portrayal. And there's a, even though God prophesied that to the Jewish mindset of, of uh, pre-Christian times, they couldn't see the Messiah's suffering. Um, that was an obstacle to them. Just like the, the, the Romans couldn't fathom the idea of a God actually taking on flesh. That was just, you know, that's a... A circle can't be a triangle. They couldn't see it. And the Jews couldn't see uh, a Messiah who would come and suffer. That's just, they want the warrior victorious thing. So I doubt that David really understood this, but I, I don't know. We can ask him someday. Tom? Well, Jesus answers that by quoting Old Testament texts that basically say, uh, having eyes they don't see, having ears they don't hear. Um, they're just blind to it. Uh, for some reason, they just couldn't grasp it. You know?
their their self-importance, they couldn't grasp the humility part. No, they couldn't. No, no, yeah. You know, my friend Jim Dennison. If you don't get the Dennison Forum, his daily blog on culture, you ought to get it. it's free. Just type Dennison Forum and hit subscribe, and it'll drop in your mailbox every day. He talks about we live in a post-truth age. You know, when I was growing up, when we were growing up, truth was a big deal. Four out of five doctors, you know, recommend camel cigarettes, you know. <laughs> but there was a sense that there was truth out there, and if you could show people evidence of the truth, people would go, oh, you're right. I'm going to change how I feel about that. Jim says we're, we're not in that age anymore, that we all have our narrative on how the world is or it should be, and you can show people evidence that what they're believing is wrong. And if it doesn't fit their truth, they will deny it. I, I, I mean, I'm a scientist, so... Um, I think I told this story in here before. I got in a discussion with a, another pastor in town. This was 40 years ago. And uh, he said, well, that's your truth, but I have my truth. I'm like, what? And I remember pointing at a wall saying, you mean to you that wall might not be white? It was clearly a white wall. He said, it might not be. And I said, well, I can get a, uh, a gas chromatograph and analyze that and show you that it is white. He said, I don't care. And I didn't, I didn't understand what he was. He, that was my first brush with postmodern deconstructionism. Well, that's rampant out there today. And don't think it's just them. You and I have a way we're looking at the world. And if we see something come along that seems to question that, we click off of that. <laughs> or we go, well, that's just a bunch of, you know, it's, I, I do that when I hear a poll that 42% of the nation thinks the president's doing a great job. And I think that must be a fake poll. And it may be, because <laughs> I don't see how 40. When another poll says 78% of Americans think that country's heading in the wrong direction. So how can both those things be true? I don't know. But I find that in myself. I'm, if I'm not careful, I'll click off anything that looks like it might be evidence that doesn't support my take on something. So as Christians, we should not fear the truth. We should be dogged pursuers of the truth. Because if Jesus is right, when he says, I am the truth, if we doggedly pursue truth, we will wind up in the arms of Christ. So we shouldn't fear looking at things. But it's sad when we live in a culture where that that may be the rules we're playing by, but not most people today. Um, don't confuse me with facts. <laughs> Tr try to argue with someone who is pro-choice. Now, all the science keeps supporting the pro-life position more and more, and they will just say, I don't care what that says. Um, it's a religion for them. You know, we will defend to the death our religion. That's why you see there's violence in the 
the whole abortion area. These, these are two religions colliding. One with the God, the Father Almighty, and one with Molech as the other God. Molech was the Old Testament God of child sacrifice. We're, we haven't made any progress from that. Other questions? We've got a few minutes left or insights? Because I'm out of ammunition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, go back to the Psalms, and there's a variety of Psalms. There's, they're not all upbeat. There's something in Psalms for everything. Yeah, you find the Psalms of lament, and, and we need those. We need, that's our guide for how to lament in a healthy way. There's Psalms of anger, Psalms of joy, and David, you know, that reflected his own spiritual journey in the Psalms. Tom? I was thinking about Nathan, and um, Nathan comes after David has had some victories and with the bad with the bad news. He had just given him the good news, and it's interesting that the same prophet would come later and and tell him the story about uh, uh, pointing out his sin with Bathsheba. Yeah, okay. you are the man. Good news and I got bad news. Yeah, yeah. But David was quick to repent. He was. He writes Psalm 51 and. He didn't argue about it. No. It just took him a year. It just took him a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God had to send a prophet in there and go, You are the man. Yeah, that's why, you know, in Ephesians 6, it talks about, most of the English translations say, don't give the devil a foothold in your life. The actual Greek word means toehold. Don't even let Satan get a toe in there. It's a little camel's nose under the tent kind of thing. Just a little bit, uh, you know, you fentanyl, just a tiny bit. Seems like that would be harmless. It's killing hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. That's why we shouldn't trifle with any sin. I, if you were here last week, I made the point, I quoted one of the Puritans who said, what makes our sin so heinous is not so much the heinousness of our sin, but the magnitude of the infinite holiness of God. Even this this slightest sin uh, is magnified up against the holiness of God. That's why we shouldn't not ever take our sins seriously. At the same time, we're not, supposed, we're not meant to grovel in our sin. Uh, Martin Luther, before his uh, conversion, so to speak, 
was so afraid of going to hell. He was so afraid of not, conf- there was some unconfessed sin in his life that the abbot of his the university there, Luther was always in the confessional. And he said, <laughs> abbot said, you know, uh, every time Brother Martin breaks wind, he comes into the confessional. Uh, he was afraid that was a sin. And uh, he, he has a firsthand account of the first time he ever celebrated Mass, how he was afraid he was going to have a heart attack because he was handling the body of Christ and now was a sinner. And, and, but finally he discovered the grace of God. And, um, uh, but our world today, you know, if you interviewed people on the street and asked them, do you really think there's something called evil, a lot of people would deny it. It's all due to, you know, the way you were brought up or potty training or something. We're not quick to identify evil anymore and admit sin. Most of the culture won't do that. Anything else? Okay. Well, I'll let you out early today. Um, Substitute teachers are famous for that. Uh, let me close this in a word of prayer, and then Chris will be back um, next week to pick up with the rest of our Lenten study. Lord God, we thank you for uh, men like David, uh, great men and yet flawed at the same time. In fact, Lord, all have fallen short of your glory. Uh, and we look through Scripture, and that should be a good word to us that every person in Scripture is a sinner. Every family is dysfunctional, and yet you love us beyond what we can even comprehend. And you've proved that in the sending of a Messiah. Lord, as we continue to go through this Lenten journey, uh, make us aware that we are indeed sinners, but more importantly, we are forgiven sinners, that the blood of Christ shed on the cross covers all of our sin. Uh, infinitely covers it, no matter how many, no matter how deep and grievous. And for that, we give you great thanks. And we continue to lift up Barbara Ann and her family uh, as they walk a very, very hard journey. Um, Lord, may you buoy them in the days, weeks, and months ahead. We pray that you would redeem Sarah's death Somehow bring something out of that that will be life-transforming to uh, many people. And we're thankful that she is home with you. And so, Lord, uh, as we prepare to go home now or go to worship, um, remind us that you go with us. And because of that, we can go with courage and strength and great hope. And we ask this and and lift this prayer to you in the strong and redeeming name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.